Good morning. Again, my name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here, and uh, it's lovely to have you with us. Um, glad that you've chosen to uh, worship the Lord with us this day. Uh, before we enter the sermon portion of our worship service, uh, just want to give you a little heads up. A few weeks ago, we kind of had a congregational meeting, a State of the Union update after our, our morning and evening worship services about kind of where we're at with our building, our space issues, um, some of our our, our realities of dealing, trying to get a secure permanent location on this corner and hopefully one day um, we'll have a permanent home. We don't, we don't know that. We have some long-term hopes to try to settle some of our space issues, be able to add some space here. You'll hear more about that um, down the road. But we also, as elders and a staff here, feel uh, like the Lord's asking us to not just think about our long-term solution of space, but what are some short-term, temporary, kind of immediate solutions as well. Uh, and so there's going to be an announcement uh, about that, what kind of what we've been thinking and dreaming and what we're running towards. There's going to be an announcement about that at the end of the service. Um, uh, so you have to stay now. Uh, you can't leave. You can't leave early. Um, but we would ask that you stick around for that. I, I hope that it's, it'll be before the service ends, kind of after we're done singing uh, a few songs. But more on that in a little bit. Right now, during the sermon portion, we have been studying the book of Matthew this spring, looking at uh, the life and teaching of King Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Matthew is the most complete gospel of any of the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not that the others are incomplete, but Matthew is the only one that goes from genealogy to great commission. Uh, it covers more teaching than any of the other Gospels of Jesus. It covers more life than any of the other uh, Gospels uh, do for Jesus. So if you want to get to know King Jesus of Nazareth, Matthew is a great place to start because it is kind of the fullest singular picture. You, you need all four Gospels to get the full picture, but it is the most complete picture on its own of who Jesus was, what kind of king he was, and what kind of kingdom he came to bring. So we've been looking at the king's origins over the last few weeks, kind of where does this king come from? So the first week we looked at his genealogy in the first few verses of Matthew 1, uh, his, his resume of his kingly descendants, uh, how he comes from King David's line, he was born to be king. Uh, but then also it, that led right up into his birth story, the Christmas story, which we looked at last week, Christmas in February. Um, and, and we studied you know, the life of Joseph, his, his earthly father, and how did Joseph experience this coming king. And now here's what happens. That, that kind of gets us to the end of chapter one. Then here's what happens after Jesus is, is born. And you're familiar with some of this if you're familiar with the Christmas story, but these, these weird magi, these weird wise men, way more than three, but they show up uh, to, to Jesus uh, when he's a young, young boy, young baby, somewhere under two years old. And then Herod gets word, the king, that uh, a new king has been born and Herod goes crazy and commits mass genocide. And so Mary and Joseph are told in a dream, you need to flee and go to Egypt. And they use the gold from the, the magi uh, to live in Egypt. Um, and so they live in Egypt as refugees. They they live in Egypt uh, for a while. And then when Jesus is an adolescent and Herod dies, they return back to Nazareth. From That gets us through chapter two, okay? I know I discovered some like mega traumatizing <laughs> realities. We're just skipping over those. And we're going to the end of chapter two and beginning of chapter three. And in between chapter two and chapter three, there's this 30-year gap. We get to, the, to Jesus returning from Egypt with his family uh, as a young boy. And then chapter three starts and Jesus is an adult. And there's this strange reality for Matthew. Some of the other gospels, Luke in particular, tells us one story from Jesus' adolescence when he was 12. The other gospels leave this like 30-year gap wildly unmentioned. 
Like they don't feel the need to fill in, well, like how did he grow up and what was his relationship like with his parents and, and did they get it and how many brothers and sisters did he have and what was it like for him being a carpenter and not, we get none of that. And Matthew nor the other gospel writers were, were codependent. Like they didn't feel the need to, to answer for you the questions you might have. They were, they were okay not answering questions. And so Matthew just jumps right to his adulthood. And that's where the story picks up in basically every gospel account. Matthew in particular makes no comment about this portion of Jesus' life, his kind of young, young, young childhood into the beginning of his public ministry when he was 30. And here's what Matthew is very aware of. Here's what Matthew has been trying to get us to in chapters one and two. Something is beginning. Something is happening. Something is about to be inaugurated. Something is kicking off. Um, And that is where Matthew picks up the story. So we're gonna read just seven verses in Matthew chapter three. We're gonna be introduced to a, a crazy character named John the Baptist in the first three verses. And then we're going to skip ahead to the end of the chapter and close with verses 13 through 17. So read with me, turn with me. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, in those days, John the Baptist, which by the way, John the Baptist is different than the apostle John, the disciple John, who Jesus loved, who wrote the the gospel account. Um, Is John the Baptist different than the apostle John? John the Baptist came, this is the cousin of Jesus, came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he, this is John the Baptist, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, is quoting the book of Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's speaking of what John the Baptist was to do. And then skip down to verse 13. We meet the adult Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, that's John, consented. So he baptizes him. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said out loud, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. So verses one through three of of Matthew chapter three introduces this crazy character named John the Baptist. Um, For Matthew's initial reading audience, which was primarily a Jewish audience, um, Matthew did not need to introduce John the Baptist at all. No introduction was necessary for John the Baptist for Matthew's Jewish reading audience. Didn't we just baptize that baby? Why is she crying? (laughs) Daryl didn't do a good enough job. We're gonna rebaptize. Kidding. Um, No one in the original reading audience of Matthew's account needed to know who John the Baptist was. They already knew who he was. Do you know that there is more historical record of John the Baptist outside of scripture than there is of Jesus? There are extra biblical sources that talk about Jesus in history. Josephus is one of them. But there is more historical account of John the Baptist than there was of Jesus. He was a wild man, had a lot of notoriety. He got on a lot of people's nerves and he drew a lot of people into the kingdom. John was one of the most famous men of his day. And in the biblical scheme of the narrative of how scripture is laid out and the prophecies that would come true, John's role was to be a forerunner, a preparer for the Messiah. John's whole identity, his whole role, his whole call, his whole vocation was to prepare a way for Jesus, prepare a road, prepare a path for the nation of Israel and for the world to be ready to hear from the king of the kingdom. 
John was stirring up crowds and he was demanding them. He was saying to them, hey guys, I know that you think that like the God of Israel has forgotten about you. I'm telling you the kingdom is coming and it's about to be here. Hey people, I know you've trusted in Rome and their authority and I know you think that like their, them and their gods are to be trusted. I'm telling you the king and the kingdom are coming. So he called them to repentance. And how he did that was he baptized them. He would baptize them in the Jordan River as this symbolic washing and cleansing of saying, hey, leave all your old way of thinking behind because the king and the kingdom are coming. Get ready, get ready, get ready. So that's what he did. Verse three says he was to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. He was to make the paths straight for Jesus. Like all the crooked paths in the world, straighten them out and lead them to the king. Call people back to sanity. Call people back to repentance. And the way that he would do that was he would baptize them, marking them as those who were ready for the king and the kingdom. Other parts of chapter three would tell us kind of the, 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 the tussle that he would create. He got on a lot of people's nerves. But that was John the Baptist's ministry. Prepare the scene for the king to enter. He also lived in the wilderness and ate locusts and honey and more camel skin. He was a weird dude, but he did this. This was his whole role. And now in verse 13, after we meet John the Baptist, the king enters. And all the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would agree together that this scene, the baptism of Jesus happens before any of his public ministry, his public facing work begins in any official way. He's baptized before he goes into the world to, be, to minister the, king and the kingdom. Jesus is baptized. John the Baptist has done all the work and now the king shows up. That's, that's the setting of the scene. And here's how it goes down. Verse 15, Jesus shows up and he says, John, you have to baptize me. And John says, no, 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 you have to baptize me. I've been preparing the way for you. I can't baptize you. And J Jesus says, hey, dude, don't argue with me. I just told you that I'm the king. Uh, you know I'm the king. You've been preparing people for me. You have to baptize me. And he says this, verse 15, let it be so now for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness, which is a little cryptic, but here's why you need to know this. Those are Jesus' first words in the New Testament. First thing Jesus says in the New Testament is, you need to baptize me because it is, it is fitting that we should fulfill all righteousness. And here's what he's saying. There's a summary statement of all of Jesus' ministry. It's a summary statement that the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is here, and the king is about to begin his mission. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. And here's, here's the broad brushstroke of what that little sentence means. Here's why this is such a big deal for those to be his first words. He's saying this, hey, the righteousness that was supposed to reign in the world since the Garden of Eden, that got shattered by Adam and Eve, I'm telling you that righteous one is here now. The kingdom that was always meant to be is here to be restored. Oh, and the righteousness that will be required to be sacrificed, to atone, to make right a people for God, that righteousness is here now. Oh, and by the way, the righteousness that's coming and the righteous world and the righteous kingdom of heaven that one day will be married to the kingdom of earth and all will be well and all that is sad will come untrue, that righteous world has, is beginning its first step right now. It is fitting that we should fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is saying a lot. My kingdom is bringing the righteousness because I am the righteous one. So he's saying to John, hey, John, little Johnny boy, you've done your part. Go enjoy locusts and honey and don't worry about anything except you're gonna get beheaded soon. But he says, hey, hey, you've done your part. Your ministry is complete. Now the king is here. You've prepared the way. Now it's time for you to hand the baton off because the king is here and it's time to begin the reason and the mission for why the king came. That's what Jesus is saying. Now baptize me. Which then helps lead into an answer, an obvious question that many people have. 
Why was Jesus baptized? Like, if he's about to begin his public ministry, why did he need to be baptized? Because we all have a lot of definitions about baptism and experiences of what baptism means. Oh, I make a profession of faith, maybe in the tradition you grew up in. I profess Jesus to be King and Lord and Savior. And then I get baptized as a washing and a symbolic reality of what happened to me. And that is a form of baptism. And then we just watched an infant be baptized up here as a sign and seal of the covenant that God makes with his people that he will seek and save his own people in the world, that they would be a blessing to the world. That's what we just did. And you need to know that none of those realities of how you've maybe experienced baptism is what's going on with Jesus. Because if you remember, John, earlier in Matthew chapter three, he's preparing a way for the king, calling people to repentance. So when he baptized people, they were repenting. Guess what Jesus didn't have anything to do with? Jesus didn't have any repentance to do. So Jesus is not being baptized in repentance. So what's going on? That's not why Jesus was just baptized. This is different. You need to know that there are different meanings of that word baptism in scripture. It's got kind of a wide range of meanings. Like later in Jesus' ministry, he will use the term baptism and he will say, hey, to his, uh, to his disciples, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm gonna be baptized with? Like my death and resurrection? Can you do that? As it's rhetorical, the answer is no. And so he's saying like, hey, I'm about to be baptized into death and suffering. Can you handle that? So that term baptism can mean a few different things. Here, here's what's going on. There's a little bit different. It's always a symbolic uh, marker. It's always an indicator of something bigger, spiritual that's going on. It always means that. But baptism for Jesus here is different. If you go back to the Old Testament book of Numbers, which has a lot of rules and regulations for God's people when they get to the promised land in the wilderness. One of those rules and regulations is for the priests, those people that we would be called into public ministry, the people who would, whose lives would be set apart for public ministry to serve at the temple, to offer sacrifices and to pray for the people. Priests, when they were 30 years old, were publicly baptized with water in a ceremony that was consecrating them for a life of ministry. That's what's happening to Jesus right now. He's experiencing the anointing of being set apart and consecrated for a life of ministry. Guess how old Jesus was when this happens? 30. Jesus is going through the ceremonial anointing and consecrating of how priests were separated out, publicly marked and washed to note the beginning of their ministry. So when Jesus, com combine all this symbolism and beauty that's going on, Jesus is being publicly baptized to set him apart for his public ministry. So he's got this priestly ceremony going on. And then John the Baptist is preparing people for the king and the kingdom. And now the king is saying, I'm here. When you kind of combine all of this priestly kingdom language into this moment, here's what we're witnessing. Here's what just happened in John chapter three. Jesus is saying, it's time to install me as king. This is my coronation service. The king's reign is publicly beginning. John baptized people to prepare them for the coming king, and now Jesus is showing up and saying the king is here. Now, this baptism didn't make him king. Right? He was already king. It recognized him publicly as the priestly king that we needed. So all this is happening, this public coronation, that's what's happening in Matthew chapter three. And then if you, if you wanna go a little bit deeper, to get a little bit of a, a, a nuance in here, what's going on in the, in the enormity of what Jesus is saying when he gets baptized, is that this king's coronation, if you think about king's coronations in history, this king's coronation is remarkably different than any other king's coronation ever. Because every commentator would tell you, every, every scholar who has written about the book of Matthew would tell you, hey, 
there's this, uh, there's this imagery going on when the dove descends on Jesus, the spirit descends in the form of a dove onto Jesus, the spirit of God literally descending on Jesus, marking him, anointing him. That would hearken the imagination of the readers back to Isaiah chapter 42, where a prophecy is made of the Messiah. And the Lord says, on that day when my servant shows up, when my Messiah shows up, I will set my spirit on him. Like you will know when I have set my spirit on him, it will be a public noticeable reality. My spirit is on him. And so these Jewish watchers are seeing this baptism happen. And then the spirit descends like a dove on Jesus' shoulder and going, oh, this This is the Messiah from the book of Isaiah. This is the servant of the Lord who came to make things right again. This is him. Except when you read on in Isaiah, in that very chapter, Isaiah 42, all the way through the end of the book, what you find out about the servant who would have the spirit of God descended on him is a servant who's gonna suffer. So people are connecting this and going, wait, wait, wait. Our king, this is coronation service. He's signing up for a life that is a life of suffering. Kings don't get coronated to suffer. They get coronated to stop suffering. Kings don't get coronated with the knowledge and the recognition that my reign is gonna be a reign of suffering, but that's what Jesus knows he's doing here. Hey, John, baptize me, mark me, consecrate me as the priestly king who's gonna suffer. That's this king's coronation. So how in the world could Jesus sign up for that life, that kingly life where he knows his kingdom is gonna be a kingdom where he suffers? What did Jesus need in order to receive this baptism. This is where we're gonna focus. All, everything else has just been intro. You're welcome. This is where we're gonna focus for the rest of our time. Because in this coronation, in this installing of the priestly king, this coronation is confirmed by what the father says about the son. And what the father says about the son, what this father is doing for his prince that he's installing to the throne and saying, hey, your kingdom is beginning to reign and your kingdom, in your kingdom, you're gonna suffer. But in this coronation, what the father says to the son is what allows Jesus and what gives Jesus what he needs to face his life of suffering. Verse 16 and 17, this is where we're gonna camp. Really, verse 17 only. I'm gonna read them both. Verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from the heavens said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's interesting that the father says here of the son, with whom I am well pleased. It's interesting because Jesus hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't preached a sermon. He hasn't performed a miracle. He hasn't healed anybody. He hasn't fed the 5,000. He certainly hasn't given his life away and defeated sin and death. Jesus has done nothing, earthly speaking, and yet before he actually does anything, the father says he's proud of him. The father says, I'm pleased with him. The father says, I approve of him. This son has all of my affirmation and he hasn't done anything yet. How can the father say he's pleased with the son when the son hasn't done anything to achieve the father's pleasure, to achieve the father's approval? Unless in the kingdom of God, identity and identity securing is different. Unless in the kingdom, we don't get our affirmations and our identities the same way we get them from the world. See, this is the father 
confirming publicly for the world that Jesus is his son and he has this secure identity and I'm already pleased with him and I approve of him and I'm proud of him and he's done nothing to prove it, done nothing to earn it, done nothing to achieve it and he can't lose it. See, because proving, earning and achieving is normally where we get our identities. That's normally how identities work. Like in the real world, God, let me tell you how identities work. Let me tell you what it's like in Nashville that all of our ultimate identities come from proving to ourselves and to the world that we are something, that we're worth something, that we've done something, and then having that identity be declared back to us based on what we've achieved. That's how identities work. You work and labor and achieve for all the approval, all the accolades, all the confirmations, all the, all the people to be proud of you, and then they give you that approval and they confirm for you that identity. You can't give yourself an identity you work for an identity, and then when you do enough, you're given the identity that you want. You need something outside of you to declare to you who you are, and you need this in every sphere of life. You have to prove or achieve what you want, and then in order for you to get the identity back from them, you have to keep achieving in order for it to continue to be declared to you. This is true in motherhood. This is true in your vocation. This is true as a student. This is true in your job. This is true everywhere. You have to keep achieving something to keep the identity that you want. But here, we have the Father publicly declaring to Jesus and all who are listening, this is who he is. This is my son. That's an identity statement. This is my son. And with him, I am well pleased. And he hasn't done anything yet. In other words, this is an identity that's received and not achieved. Do you know the security of a received identity that you didn't do anything for? Do you know the confidence of a received identity that you don't have to earn or keep proving? And do you know the, the security of an identity that is received is what actually propels Jesus to a life of ministry and suffering. Jesus knew who he was so he could face anything. He already knew who he was, so he was prepared for anything. He was willing to do anything because he already knew who he was. And you may think I'm making this up, but if you skip to the, that Last Supper scene, Later on in Jesus' life, a famous scene, the night before Jesus dies, he's with his disciples for Passover meal. Um, the night he's about to be betrayed by Judas, we're told in John chapter 13, where the la that, that's, it's John's account of the Last Supper scene, Jesus gets up from the table and it says that he's about to serve his disciples by washing their feet. And we're also told that washing the feet is very symbolic of the washing with the blood that he's about to do by a sacrifice the next day. Jesus is about to serve his disciples and it's gonna cost him greatly. And his symbolism for that is, let me become a servant for you and wash your feet. It says in John chapter 13, when he's about to get up, when he does get up to serve his disciples in that way and wash their feet, you know what it says? John gives us a little window into the psyche of Jesus. And it says, Jesus was able to get up from the table to serve his disciples because he knew who the father was. He knew what authority the father had given him and he knew who he was. He knew where he was going, like after it all. So here's what John chapter 13, verse three just told you. You can go look it up. Jesus knew who he was, so he was willing to serve and willing to suffer. Because he knew who he was and he knew who the father was, because all that was secure, he was able then to go suffer for the sake of love. He knew who he was, 
So he was willing to suffer and willing to serve. His identity is what allowed him to suffer. He knew his identity was secure. He knew it was received and not achieved. He knew, and he knew the one that had given him this received identity, so he knew it wasn't gonna be taken away either. He had the security of a fully received identity. Does any part of you want that? Does any part of you long for an identity that's that secure? Do any of you long to know who you are to such a degree that you are so free? You're so free because you're so secure. The security of your identity makes you free. You're so free that you're actually able and willing to suffer for those that you love because you know who you are. So I don't need those that I love or those in my world to tell me who I am or to make me who I am. I already know who I am. So I'm willing to suffer and love those around me. Does any part of you want a secure, received identity that's permanent? Well, if you're like me, maybe there's some indicators that you're not, maybe you functionally believe, oh yeah, Jesus gives me a received identity. But maybe functionally, you like me live like you still have an achieved identity. So what are some indicators of an achieved identity? By the way, achieved identities, I shouldn't have used the past tense. I should have used the ongoing present tense, like the present active participle. I don't know, not an English teacher, Bible teacher. But that, that like it's an achieving identity. Because it it if you're in an achieving identity mindset, it's never past tense. You've never done it. You've never done enough to secure it. It's not past. It's, I have this achieving framework for my identity. I have to keep doing. I have to keep earning. I have to keep proving. Do you know that if you have an achieving identity mindset, it's a fragile identity? It's, I, is, it, is it secure? Could it be taken away? Have I done enough? So here, here are the some indicators that you maybe are living in an achieving or an achieved identity mindset. The first is this, is the reality of comparison. You're constantly comparing yourself to other people in your sphere. Other parents, other coworkers, other siblings, people in the same industry. You can't stop comparing by trying to measure yourself against how much others are making, how much success others are having having in, in the world that you live in. Or wait, when I'm with a certain group of people, they talk about this other person and they praise him. Uh, I wonder if when I'm not there, do they talk about me? Like, are they talking about me this way? And uh, I, it's constant comparison. Constant, am I measuring up? Am I stacking up? Or maybe if it's not comparison that reveals your achieving identity, maybe it's defensiveness. Would people in your world say that you are defensive? You can't answer that. That would prove the point. Uh, that you, you have to get a word in. You have to prove that you're not defensive. How ironic. But would, you, would people in your world, would people close to you say they're pretty defensive? Are you quick to get a clarifying word in? Quick to make sure that you are fully heard and fully understood by people? Quick to justify your actions and your motives? Well, I'm sorry if that hurt you, but that's not, that's not what I meant to do. So, like, come on. Typically when we're defensive, we're defending an identity that we've spent a lot of time and energy trying to build and now their accusation or criticism seems to threaten the identity that I've built. Well, if you're saying that about me, then that means I may not be who I think I am and I may not have the identity that I wish I had for you. So let me prove to you that you're wrong. Let me prove to you that I shouldn't have hurt you or it shouldn't have been hurtful. 
Like what? Like let me, let me go on and get in, let's get in a courtroom and I'll go down my list of evidence as to why you're wrong. That's not what you said. That's not how you said it. Well, that's not what I said. That's not what I meant. Maybe it's just me. Maybe you're, and if it's not comparing or defensive, maybe you're anxious. Like, are you full of anxiety, constantly wondering what people are saying about you when you're not around? Constantly wondering as you fall asleep at night, have I done enough, proven enough, done well enough, or have my failures stacked up too much? So now I'm losing sleep and losing peace and joy because I can't find any peace in who I actually am and so I have to keep proving, but I don't, I'm not sure if it's actually enough and so I'm worried. Or what might happen in six months that I can't predict that could threaten the identity that I've tried to build and tried to secure? Is it enough? Is it enough? Is it enough? And so if you're anxious, it definitely means the next indicator is that you're exhausted. You're exhausted if you're not quite sure who you are. And see, the the treadmill of performance, the treadmill of earning and proving, I don't care how many times you hit the emergency stop button on that treadmill, it never turns off. And you feel like on that treadmill, if I jump off of this thing, I'm gonna die. Like I, I can't get off of this thing, it's still going, there's still something to prove. You can't rest if there's more to do. You can't rest if there's more to, more to earn. You have to work late, you have to, you have to study more. There could be something that I'm missing on. There could be something out there that I could be securing for myself. And so I'm exhausted. Which means if any of those are true of you, maybe they're just, maybe just pick my favorites. Maybe you can't relate to any of those. But for the one of you that can, if you're comparing defensive, anxious, or exhausted, here's what I know is true about you too. You have, if ever, rarely experienced true joy. Fragile identities don't get to actually enjoy anything. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. He talks about how if, if, if pride is puffing you up and you have this fragile ego and this fragile self, you can't enjoy anything. Like you can't actually enjoy just making the money that you've made because it's in constant comparison to other people. Is it enough? Is it more than them? Do they know that I've made more than them? And so you can't actually enjoy making money, but you can play that out. You can't actually enjoy going on a vacation either. Well, because this vacation could have been more. This could have vacation, it was three days. It could have been five days. Or I didn't get to go on the vacation that, that that family got to go on and their family looked like they had a lot more fun on vacation. So my vacation is now spent just thinking about what vacation I didn't get to have. I'm not actually enjoying the vacation I do have. Or you can't actually enjoy your kids because they're not actually good enough, smart enough, athletic enough because you need them to give you an identity and they're not doing enough to give you the identity that you want them to give you. And so they need to be doing more to give you the identity that you need to get from them and they will need therapy. Like you, it, it will not ever be enough for your kids to prove to the world that you are who you need to be. The achieved identities, achieving framework for our identities can never rest and they can never find lasting joys because here's the reality. Achieving identities, achieved identities don't actually know who they are. You never cross the finish line. You never have done enough, proved enough, made enough, saved enough, been righteous enough. Like you've never done enough to actually settle and actually clear the finish line and think, man, I did it. I have arrived at the identity that I wanted to build for myself. And so forget all of like the stress and the restlessness and the no joy. If that's our mindset that I have to build and achieve my identity, then you actually you could just forget about ever suffering for those that you love. You'll never do it. Because those that are in your sphere, those that are in your world, 
they're just pawns in your chess game to try to get an identity. They're not there for you to serve and love. They're there to, to give you something. You need them to be a certain way. You need them to receive you a certain way. You need them to view you a certain way. And so you're not there to love them and serve them. You're there to take from them. So you're not actually thinking about loving and serving them. You have to get something from them. They need to serve you. So if any of that can, can kind of, if any of that disrupts or, or, or stings a little, maybe, maybe you'd be willing to say, man, I would love to not have an achieved identity. I would love to received one. So where do we get a received identity and how does the, the baptism of Jesus seen in Matthew 3 give us the confidence and the security of a received identity? David Brooks, New York Times journalist, uh, wrote a recent book called How to Know a Person. The first 30 or 40 pages is wonderful. Uh, I've not read all of it. I don't read everything that I quote, okay? I read most of what I quote, okay? I have read the beginning of this. And I read this quote, okay? This is mine. Google didn't tell me this. Um, <laughs> someone from the front row does the same thing. Um, he, he says this in the intro, how to know a person is the title of the book. He says, perhaps to really know another person, you have to have a glimmer of how they experience the world. To really know someone, you have to know how they know you. In other words, if you want to really know someone, you have to see how others see in order to truly know them. And that, it's beyond like sympathy and empathy. That, that's a part of it. It's actually like full-on incarnation. I'm going to so get into your world, I'm going to see how you see everything, and then I can know you. So if you want to know the Lord, if you want to know Jesus, let's ask this question. If you really want to know someone, David Brooks would say, you have to see how they see the world. You have to see how they see you. So how does the Lord, how does the Father see you? Because that would, that would let you know him. How does he see you? And is it possible that he sees you in the same way, in the same standing, with the same affection that he sees Jesus with? The New Testament is full of proof of this. One of the most powerful ones is in John 17. Does the Father see you the same way that he sees Jesus? If you go back to that washing of feet night, John 17 is still the Last Supper night. It's still the, the upper room scene, the, the, the final Passover. And Jesus goes off to the side, whether the disciples could hear him or not, we don't know, but he's somewhere in, in the vicinity praying with his father in a very intimate setting. It's known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. And he's talking to the father about a lot of mystical, inner Trinitarian realities. And so it's really mysterious, don't understand all of it. But he's, he talks a lot about us, like the church and the churches in the ages to come. He prays for the future church. And one of the things, he's just, he's just talking about his people and who he came to save and what he came to do and how much he loves them. And he's praying with the Father and he says this in John 17. He says, Father, you have loved them, the church, my bride, your people, you have loved them even as you have loved me. And you loved me, he says, from before the foundation of the world. So let me just do a little space-time continuum for you right here. Jesus just told you that in the Trinity, 
the father and son were in eternal pre-world existent relationship. And in that space, Jesus was loved in the Godhead before space and time began. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the inner Trinitarian community of perfect love, perfect self-giving glory and self-giving love to others. The Father loved the Son before the world began. Which, if you think that his declaration at his baptism of this is my Son with whom I'm pleased before he did anything, this is really before he did anything. Jesus was loved by the Father before time began, which means in no way, shape, or form could the love of the Father to the Son be based on Jesus' performance or duty or because he earned it. He had done nothing. It is literally a love outside of space and time, so nothing in space and time can alter it. You loved me before the foundations of the world, before time began. The love that the Father had for the Son originated with the Father. So the only thing that could alter or change or affect the love of the Father to the Son or take it away is the Father. That's where it starts. And the love of, Father, of the Father to the Son is secure because it is secured in Him. It's secured in the Father. So here's what Jesus just said. There's this mysterious inner Trinitarian love that took place before time began. And Father, you loved me before the world began. Oh, and by the way, Father, you loved them the way that you loved me. The Father loves you with the same love that he loves Jesus with. The love that existed before time began, now through Jesus has been poured out on you. And so here, this is gonna sound blasphemous, I know, but I have the authority of scripture to back me up that what the Father says to the Son at his baptism could also be said of you. This is my son, this is my daughter, with whom I am well pleased. Here is your received identity. You didn't do anything to earn it, so you can't do anything to lose it. That's how secure it is. The identity you have as a son or a daughter of the king is outside of space and time because it began before time existed. And so nothing in space and time can alter it or take it away. The love that the Father has for you originated with him. So the only thing that can affect it or diminish it is the Father himself. Do you know how secure the love of God is? It's based on nothing that you've done or haven't done. It's based on nothing that you've achieved or not achieved. It's not based on your disobedience. It's also not based on your obedience. It's not based on your unrighteousness or your righteousness. It's based on him the love of the Father is secure because it is secured in him. John Stott, Anglican priest in Great Britain generation or so ago, famously said, the love, the cross of Christ did not secure the love of God for you. The love of God secured the cross of Christ for you. It was his love that sent Jesus in the first place to buy back his own, to redeem his own for his own keeping. The love of the Father is secure because it is secured in him. And you can yeah, but that till you're blue in the face. Yeah, but like not after what I've done. Yeah, but like you have to, you know, you gotta, you gotta like do stuff later. Like, yeah, but you know. 
And I, I will say this with all like gentleness and compassion. If you think you have the ability to alter the father's love for you, I will just graciously tell you, you're not that important or powerful. You're just not that special. Like you can't alter how he feels about you. He has decided to love you since before the foundations of the world and you think you can change his mind? If you believed this, like functionally believe this, can you imagine how you would soar with confidence? Can you imagine what it would do to your comparing or defending or anxiety? Can you imagine what it would do to your exhaustion? Can you imagine what rest it would give you? If you know who you are, who you truly are, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased, period. Do you know if you functionally believe that, you could face anything? Like anything, anything. No asterisks. If you know who you are, you can face anything. And, and I'm not hyperbolically saying that. I'm saying proven by the life of Jesus who knew who he was, so he was willing to face anything. He was willing to go to the lowest hell for you because he knew who he was. You can face anything. You can face every failure. You can face every strife, every stress, every mistake, every doubt, every death, every hard marriage, every new season, every unknown season. If you know who you are, you can suffer for the sake of love in any and all circumstances. Because you won't need your circumstances or your relationships to tell you who you are. You'll already know who you are. The Father is pleased with you. Because of the work of Jesus, you are now secured in the family of God forever. The Father is pleased with you and he has been long before you got here. So you can rest. That's how identities are in the kingdom of God. They are given by the king. They are not achieved or earned or proven or kept by us. They are given by the king. Would you receive it? Let's pray. Jesus, my own life would tell you, my own, my own comparison, my own exhaustion, my own defensiveness, my own anxiety, my own lack of joy would tell you. There's so many days that I don't know who I am. It's so hard, Jesus, to, to untangle our identity from what we do. I am because of what I do is what we believe, not I do because of who I am. So would you free us? Would you, would you help us to breathe deeply this morning? Like literally take deep sighs of relief. That a received identity is the only place that joy can be found and would we be freed? Would we be so secure that we would be free to love our neighbor, love our family and love our city? That we don't need our city and our neighbors and our spouses and our kids to serve us. We can serve them because we know who we are. Make it palpable for us as we close in song. Jesus, we pray in your name, amen.